0: This Expert Insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 28th of February, 2018. The topic is Early Psychosis, Recognition and Management in Primary Care. On the panel we have Professor Anthony Harris, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney, Dr Julia Laffin, Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, Alex Motti, a clinical psychologist, and Toma, lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Bered Gordon.
1: Um, so to kick off, Anthony, I might check with you. Um, how common is psychosis? How often are we likely to see this in our practices?
0: Psychosis is quite a broad range of diagnoses. I mean, we think about psychosis being a part of perhaps uh, a first episode of psychosis developing into a whole range of different possibilities. Sometimes it might be part of a bipolar disorder, sometimes it might be part of a, a substance-induced disorder. So there's quite a wide range of diagnostic uh, poss- uh, possibilities there. If, uh, over a lifetime, uh, probably about 2 to 3 out of 100 people would have some sort of psychotic disorder. Uh, many of those would be quite uh, uh, short-lived. Uh, if we think about schizophrenia, about 8, uh, about, uh, uh, eight in a 1,000 people. So just under 1% uh, of people uh, probably di- uh, are diagnosed with schizophrenia at some stage in their life. So it's not a huge number of the population, but 2 or 3 people out of 100, that's actually a lot of people when you think about all the people in, in, in Australia. So it's a, it's a significant illness.
1: And just staying with that, um, Julia, you alluded to kind of there being different ages of onset. Can you speak to us a little bit about
2: what to expect there? Yes, yes. so actually it's been um, documented over many years of people studying psychosis onset that there are um, peaks in people's life when it's more likely to develop uh, a first psychotic episode. And for men, the peak age is around the early 20s, but can continue to develop psychosis right on in your 30s, 40s, 50s. And for women, the peak age of first onset is later, so typically in the 30s. Uh, the, reason the reason I mention it, actually, is because I think it's really important for us to be aware that if someone comes to... Uh, an ED department or a GP practice with symptoms that feel and sound and seem like psychotic symptoms even if they're in their 30s and 40s, we shouldn't be saying oh well they're a bit old, it's probably not that it must be something else, because it can and does still happen to people at those ages. Early intervention services here in Australia have been designed to assist particularly young people who developed their first episode of psychosis, and that's for various reasons, including the um, the idea that people who get psychosis early, when they're at school, before they develop relationships and so on, are impacted more greatly by, you know, a, a difficult and chronic illness like psychosis. Uh, but in some places, including in Victoria, there are services where early intervention and in psychosis is opened up people of all ages with the first episode. Um, so I'm um, curious
1: then, Tom, for you, um, when did you, do you think you first started experiencing symptoms? And what were some of the things that you or others around you
3: noticed? Well, for me, I think it started when I was about 13. Um, I think it was drug-induced. I used to smoke a lot of marijuana for about a year. And symptoms, the main one would be paranoia, which for me it's a bit hard to explain, but I'm sure you've all heard maybe things like th- thinking people are following you and, and so on. And as the years progressed, you know, I started to develop depression and anxiety and different things like that. Um, but because I was mingling with the wrong crowd, it's, it's hard for them to say, oh, maybe you need to seek help. So I didn't notice that other people saw changes in me until I was in my 18s to 20s. And that was mainly from family. Um, just the, you know, outbursts of anger towards family. Um, my my brother's noticing something's different. I'm not my usual self, um. Especially when, you know, I would be pretty high, you know, it it can sort of make you feel like a different person. Um, Also, again, linked to depression, very lonely. At points I was very isolated most of the times for quite a few months. Um, But I think, yeah, definitely when when I realized myself was um, through family at the age of about 22, so there's that 10-year period, so it's, it's hard to explain when and where. But I think for me, it was definitely when I was about 13, definitely um, noticing that, you know, things weren't right in my own thinking. Um, yeah, intrusive thoughts and things along those lines, I think, main symptoms. And
1: so, Alexi. You- We've seen someone in our practice that we think may have first episode psychosis. What are the key elements of an assessment? What are the things we should be on the lookout for um,
4: to try and make that decision? Um, Probably not best of considering who I'm up here with and probably not best place to answer this question, but just to, to speak to what's happening for Toma, I mean meeting but if you're sitting in front of someone that's describing all these experiences and, and I guess, a global decline in functioning and poor judgment and, and, um, and uh, you know, engaging in substance use, meeting that person where they are, using the things they bring forward um, in their language, I think is, is a vital way to try and draw out a bit more, you know, about what paranoia might mean for that person or what those symptom what the symptomology actually. Is and then formulates um, within you know within a framework like in this case psychosis, but I, I think to get a really clear picture, if you don't mind, and over that way, mm-hmm. I think the, I really do think the expertise would be over that way. In, um,
0: Julia, or... Sure. Um, so
2: psychosis, as um, Anthony said earlier, it's a it's an umbrella term that we use to describe uh, symptoms, well, illness that. Can then be subtyped into different types of psychotic illness, like manic psychosis, depressive psychosis, schizophrenia, drug psychosis. the The framework that we work within at the moment, and I think it's the same in your service, mm-hmm. Anthony, at, at the moment, is that when you're dealing with people who are experiencing psychotic um, symptoms for the first time, we don't. We don't spend too much time trying to work out which those subtypes of psychosis it is, because uh, in fact the important thing to understand is whether the person has psychotic symptoms, what they are, if they're distressing, and how we can best help. And in most cases, that's offering an antipsychotic treatment. If there are mood symptoms as well, there may be a place for an antidepressant or a stabilizer, but generally once you've identified there are psychotic symptoms, then the first line of treatment is an antipsychotic, alongside all the um, psychological interventions. So how do we determine if someone has a psychotic illness? Well, typically they'll have some, but not necessarily all of a list of symptoms, which many of you will be familiar with. So Hearing voices, we say auditory hallucinations. But in fact, you can have hallucinations in any of the senses. Auditory are the most common. Then there's visual. You have taste. People might feel as if the food doesn't taste right and start only eating out of closed packets and not eat food cooked by the family anymore. It doesn't taste right. And that might give rise to delusional ideas about being poisoned or the food being tampered with. Um, you can smell things, smell gas, smell rotting. Um, you can have a feeling that something's being done deep to the inside of your body that's not quite working right. Um, and, and some people, and I think this is this is less well known, particularly people who've had a history of um, childhood abuse, can have um, sort of the sense of a sort of sexual hallucination where they feel as if they're being interfered with, which is obviously deeply unpleasant. And these are the sort of things that may not come to light in first or second meeting with someone. So these are things that you explore gently. So that's the sort of hallucination type um, psychotic symptom. And then in addition to that, there's delusions, which really are um, what we call fixed false beliefs that are often bizarre. Um and often there's a persecutory or fearful flavour to those ideas, so people feel as if they're being monitored or watched, might feel that there's somehow a, a chip in their brain because people know what they're thinking, but that they're being monitored with cameras. But there are other I mean there are other types of delusions too, so in in a manic type psychosis you might see someone believing that they are the next Harry Packer or Richard Branson and spending money on grand schemes based on those beliefs. Um, Or in a depressive psychosis type picture, you might see someone who believes that their insides are rotting or that they're dead, or that they're responsible for all the the wars and conflict and and, um, hardship that there is in the world and that therefore the world's better off without them and therefore they should commit suicide. So these are how these odd beliefs... Drive people into behaviours which
0: they otherwise wouldn't um, be doing. So, possibly, mm-hmm. Natalie. Yeah. Now, as Julia was, is saying, it, the assessment is a process which isn't a, isn't cross, isn't once off. It, it goes for some time, and um, uh, I like to think about it really from the point of view of, of, of the world of the person who, who is suffering these symptoms. So the, there, are, there are the symptoms that are affecting them in particular, and Julia's detailed uh, a lot of those, and they're very important. But the pattern of those symptoms over time will give you the diagnosis, so there's not much need to worry too much about the, the niceties of diagnosis first off. It's first episode psychosis. So you have the individual. You also have the family. So particularly for, uh, in my service, it's a youth service, uh, both uh, the, the family is very important. The absence of a family is often even more important, of course. So what's happened to uh, to create that disaster for, for, for that young person uh, to try and figure, uh, to place uh, the illness um, and the experiences of the young person in a context which is understandable by the family, uh, a family which out near Parramatta can come from a lot of different places and have a lot of different belief systems about what, is, uh, what the, uh, the, uh, their relative is experiencing. And then there's a, a broader context within the community, the society, the school, the university, the job, um, the street, the, the drug supplier, whatever it might be that that young person it, uh, has to see where they're up to from the point of view of their functioning. Because the services that we work with uh, are interested in, in helping from the point of view of the symptoms, but we're really interested in getting people back into a functioning life, into helping them recover you know, in, in a way which is useful for them. And so knowing the trajectory of where they're going gives a great is also very helpful from the point of view of diagnosis, but it also helps us uh, with the aim of where we're heading, where are we trying to get back to. So um, the symptomatic uh, uh, assessment is is really important. I I would throw in some negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms and and mood and and anxiety because, uh, as uh, Thomas said, this is really uh, affecting from the point of view of mood and depression and and it's highly anxiety-provoking with all of of these things going, going wrong. Uh, And and those are the problems that actually bring people to care, is that they're depressed and they're frightened, um, uh, much more than the symptoms that we might be actually asking about. What was your experience? Well,
3: again, it took me a while to open up over time, seeing psychologists, especially because I was in the Kylo Centre, so that was my first visit. So that environment um, was pretty scary to be honest and to be able to talk about what's going on for the first time you know it's you you can sort of you know be a bit on the spot how do I explain what's just happened to me but but also again when the months go by you know things things like did start to get better for me um and I learned more about what psychosis is and you know what's linked to it and then from then I can from there I could learn how to approach that. But, but again, like, for example, you mentioned anxiety, like, yes, it's linked to, it can be linked to psychosis, but also the, the anxiety of um, how am I gonna get back on my feet? How, how am I gonna, you know, get to ba- basically functioning norm- normally again? So, yeah, definitely um, it, it's hard to open up, personally, about those things. Especially when you don't know much about it. So, so again, I think having that support in place is key, and they well, what I experienced through the psychologist that I saw was you know they were able to unpack things more, uh, giving me a, a broader um, understanding of what's going on internally, because for someone like me, I can be pretty shy and it's, and it's hard to open up about what's going on inside. But it, it's definitely important. It's, it's definitely, um, the, for me personally, it was the start of my recovery. And I just took it one day at a time. Um, instead of um, getting overwhelmed, um, I just tried to do the best best I could, um, you know, to get things started in the right direction.
4: Okay, I think that's kind of what I was driving towards, that someone sort of said that. Um, having an, an empathic approach and allowing a bit of a space in the assessment process because, it, you know, it, it, I'm sure we're going to get to insights at, at some point, but, you know, insight can be, really dictate how that assessment process will go. If someone's not ready to open up or if someone at a certain level knows what they're saying is strange, they may not ever volunteer that information, you yeah. know, and may not be ready. And we're quite fortunate in the early psychosis team in that we have a bit more time to do that. So it is a great, a great team from that perspective. But, but yeah, if you really can draw out that assessment process and don't jump to conclusions and to provide someone space to, to talk, it's really a great approach. Yeah.
1: And maybe I'll of stay with you about that idea of insight that sometimes in the early phases you may be talking to someone who doesn't yet have a lot of understanding or insight to what's happening for them. How do you manage that therapeutically? How do you deal with that in your work?
4: Um, well, it is, it's it's massive. There's a lot of research, I think, um, from my colleagues down the end. There's a lot of research being done in um, insight being a predictor for illness course um, and... Of that lack of insight um, being, yeah, definitely a definite predictor around severity and chronicity. Um, I think also in the assessment process, asking around conviction, so how much you, that an individual might believe a certain delusion, is is really important because having, if you understand what I'm driving to, is having a real 100% I believe that, even putting it as a percentage, 100% I believe that. That would be something very hard to shift, but it's also an indication of mental state um, um, of where they are. And I think, you know, we share a, a client where um, a young man who, who he, he might have um, he came to us with, I guess, a le- he might have a learning delay, so he's not got a, quite a high baseline. But um, through that neurocognitive um, degeneration that happens with the process of the first episode, it, it's become quite hard to challenge him on anything um, and, and the lack of insight has really made working with him quite quite difficult. So um, I guess it is important to, to sort of find a way to access someone, find their language, really meet them where they are in terms of their language and, and try and um, access it as best as they can and then... Um,
1: and Tim, I can come back to you. Um, this idea of a prodrome is often pulled forward, that you know, certain practitioners should be on the look out for a prodrome and should be jumping in and managing early. Um, can you speak to us a little bit about that? What are we looking for, and what do we need to do if we think someone's in a prodrome? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think TOMA uh, really describes uh, a good part of the early stages of TOMA, uh, of, a, of, a, of a prodrome. Um, Sometimes um, uh, we talk about it the people being at ultra high risk or a, a, a with an at risk mental state, and and this is a whole this is a period of time um, before uh, the onset of, of frank psychotic symptoms that might drag somebody into an emergency department or into uh, into seeing a GP or one of the me- you know, one of me- many of us in mental health teams that really uh, said. Something's not quite right. Things are falling apart in in, in small ways. So so many of the symptoms that Julia talked about of of, uh, persecution, of ideas of reference, feeling that the world is in some ways uh, referring back to them, feeling uh, unable to control one's destiny or uh, 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 the the ideas of passivity, which uh, are very common. Those things are there in partial form. uh, They come they go. People have a certain amount of insight into what's happening. Convince themselves that it's not really happening. But slowly, bit by bit, those <coughs> symptoms build upon each other until people get uh, caught into a full psychotic uh, uh, syndrome. Now, that prodrome can go on for uh, for a significant period of time uh, beforehand. Uh, years ago, when we looked at uh, at the young people coming into our uh, first episode psychosis services, uh, people were had diagnosable psychotic symptoms uh, for an average of about nine months, <coughs> mean was three months. That so people were clearly psychotic for a long period of time before they came to services, but the prodrome went on for some people for uh, two, three, four years, uh, and you could see this working. As people dropped out of their role, their grades collapsed collapsed at school or their work pattern uh, deteriorated and they they were losing losing their jobs. Uh, And and their relationships with their friends and family fell apart. Uh, Often with arguments about the sort of stupid things that any family uh, argues about but with a deleterious effect upon the quality of the relationships with those friends and family. And so you began to see somebody who is more isolated and who is developing a, a full psychotic picture. So it's a—it's not something that happens overnight. It happens with time. Um, uh, and so even for people with uh, who develop bipolar disorder, often there's... We don't sometimes talk about it as a program, but there's an extended period of mood disturbance, which is there, uh, which uh, is expressed often as depressive episodes that might be high, uh, severe enough to be called a major depression or something like that but it's certainly there uh, so uh, this is a pattern which is frequently seen if you ask those questions yeah. I,
3: might, I might just add how important early intervention is like you saying over time yes it built up and for me personally it built up to the point where I just said I can't take it anymore and that led to suicidal thoughts and things so Again, yeah, it, it it takes little by little, but when it's for me personally, it built up to that point, and that was very serious. I do not know where I would be if I didn't get that early intervention. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: You might talk for a minute about medication that's often part of... Important part of the treatment for psychosis and often there's a lot of side effects and often it's hard to get people to want to take the medication. So I might start with you, Tomo, mm-hmm. about what your experience of taking medication has been and maybe for the rest of the panel, maybe some of the strategies you've developed to help people, to motivate them to be on medication. Um, what's the best way for us to help people persist with a treatment that's going to be helpful? So I'll start with you, Tomo.
3: Yes, so I first started um, taking medication when I was in Kylo, so that was basically compulsory. Um, To be honest, um, my experience with medication has been good, Um, no real side effects that affect my weight or my mood or anything, Um, but over those few years, um, I changed a few times of medication, I noticed improvements, but then those improvements didn't stay. So it wasn't like I relapsed or anything. I just noticed that, you know, it it would be working to a point and then it would sort of fade away. So that's what led me to um, start taking clozapine. So I've been on clozapine for nearly two years now, and I I say it's helped, it's good, um, definitely works for me. Um, But I'm at that stage where I'd like to try... um, Coming down from clause a bit, just just to see how, how far that I can go?
2: Well, medication is n- not our only treatment, but it is a first-line treatment for psychotic illness and there is evidence that people who are on treatment do better. And if you stay on treatment uh, for around twelve months after the first episode and you're symptom free, uh, that you tend to have better outcomes long term than people who don't. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know that that's directly due to the treatment, but maybe that the people who stay on treatment are slightly different type of person, more compliant, maybe less unwell in the first place. However, that's, that's as much as we know, and so in our service, um, we have conversations with the young people about that, because one of the first questions they want to know is, how long do I have to be on this? Is it forever? And, We say we hope not, and then we explain, and we try it for twelve months, and then we'll have a gradual lowering of the dose to see how people manage. And that's sort of what you're hoping to try at some point tomorrow. And you're feeling well, and you're stable. You're wondering, can you manage with less? Maybe ultimately, can you manage without any? And and the, the way we the way we find out is just to test that trial. It like, you know regularly meet with the people you know. Make sure: Are they having any sort of re-emerging symptoms? Any difficulties with treatment? So it doesn't have to be forever. That's that's one important thing. Um, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but I'll go with it anyway. There's two sort of groups of antipsychotics. It's sort of what we're called the older generation and the newer generation. The older generation are treatments like haloperidol. Um, and the newer treatments are those like alansapine, or quetiapine, which are much more commonly used now, particularly with young people. And there are side effects with both types. Um, with the older generation drugs like haloperidol and those in that family, the problems that were really very characteristic of people. Um, the side effects were what we call extrapyramidal side effects. So people would have um, difficulties with their joints being, their muscles being sort of rigid and having too much tone, and they walk oddly. And they'd also have these sort of sort of spastic movements of their face and contortions of their hips. And, and, and it's called the chart of dyskinesia, and it could be the case that once those were established, you couldn't get rid of them, and and. Those older generation treatments moved out of favor, really, for those reasons. Because some of those um, side effects were very obvious and somewhat stigmatizing. The reason a lot of those patients did have those types of symptoms is because the drugs were used at very high dose. You know, some <coughs> people don't respond to treatments, so you just ramp up the dose. Actually, we know that that's not really going to help. What it does is it increases the likelihood of severe side effects. So that being said, the, 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 older, the older generation drugs sort of moved to the back of the cabinet and, and now we all use sort of new generation treatments which have come with their own set of problems and I'm sure many of you will be aware of the high risk of weight gain, metabolic syndrome, physical health difficulties that come with the treatments like olanzapine, um, Spiridone and Clozapine also is a is a big offender. Having said that, I am, I know Anthony is too, I, I am a, a big fan of having a trial on Clozapine. Clozapine is our best treatment. It is reserved for people who don't respond to, to other treatments that have been given successively. You've had a good trial and a decent dose and you know the patient's been taking them but they just haven't got better and in that situation you'd offer close pain uh, because it does give um, a greater chance of people um, getting remission
0: of their symptoms. So part of the question was about how do you convince people to take something for a long period of time when they're either feeling well or they don't think they've got an illness? So that, that's, a, that's a big ask to try and ask, get people to, to take something which they, I think you've been very lucky, I must say, uh, because most people that I look after do complain about side effects. It's pretty much uh, part of the course. And they change from one medication to the, ne- the next medication with the hope that the next one will, have, will be better. Sometimes it is, but they still usually have some sort of side effects of one sort or another. So. Uh, One of the other problems with this is that the way that our system looks after people, especially initially, it's like what happened to you. It's involuntary. People are dragged into a hospital and and they're forcibly given medication. And the best way of getting out of hospital is to be very cooperative and say whatever the doctor (laughs) asks you to say in the most positive way, and so you get out. And so when people see... Alex or me or, or, or Julia, then that is a pattern which people tend to say, you know, to tend to continue. They tend to say, Yes, of course I'm taking my medication. Um, no, no. And things, you know, medication stop too rapidly or things things go astray. And so a really important thing to do is to build up that, that rapport, that therapeutic rapport, in which uh, 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 they really do believe me when I say, You know, you're taking the medication. In the end, if you stop, that's your, that's your, uh, uh, that's your decision. You know, there might be CTOs and things like that, but just tell me about it and then we can try and follow you and minimise the damage and catch things if things fall up. But it takes people who have been dragged into hospital a lot of trust to do that when they know that we might do that again. And so that, 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 that rapport with, yes, I really am listening to them when they're complaining about whatever symptom or side effect that, uh, that they're having, and that I will try and do as much as I can to minimise that is really important, because it's, it's, that's what it's all about. It's about their care. Sort of, uh, that's a patient-centred care approach uh, to a certain extent in which you're listening and try and minimising and adapting. And talking to them... So these are, these are the choices that I'd recommend... These are the issues that might arise. Which is the one that's important to you? Do you want to feel... uh, uh, run the risk of being perhaps a little bit agitated at the beginning, uh, but not feeling as hungry? Or do you really want to have that sleep at night and is it more important for you to have a medication which might have a bit of sedation so you get your sleep every night? Of course, one of the other ways that medication is frequently given, antipsychotic medication, is by an injection, a depot, a long-lasting depot. And that's that's problematic. That's usually introduced in our system as a part of a community treatment order in a voluntary way, and it's usually to young men who are wimpish about needles at the best of times. uh, And when you're forcing them to have an injection, that's the that's the one thing they're really clear they don't want to have. but it's also you, you, a way of avoiding the arguments. You see this, see this time and time again in families in which uh, people are pursued. Have you taken your tablets tonight? Yes, mum, I've taken the tablets. Just get off my back. And so this happens every night, and you get these these the, these uh, uh, these arguments in, in, within the family, which are really destructive to the, mo- the most important base for that for that young person. So there's. There are sort of, uh, uh, this is a conversation which goes on and which will recur uh, because uh, uh, you know, sometimes these symptoms recur and finding the one that is least problematic and most effective takes a bit of time. Um, and so you have, to be, you have to be listening to that and, and working really hard at, at, at uh, things like the weight gain, which... The Bondi Group do fantastically from the point of view of of making sure that people aren't putting on putting on weight, but anticipating some of the problems. The only other thing that I say is that there there often is a difference between the medication that an an inpatient unit uses and the one which people end up when they're in the community. So inpatients are under tremendous pressure. And they're trying to get people contain difficult behaviours and get people out the door as quickly as possible. So they often, in my view, have a have a bias towards quite sedating medication. That's that's not a good way of getting back into things if you're feeling really sedated. And so we're left, you know, I don't know with the Julia, I uh, but I'm often left with the with the decision of taking people off something which keeps them, uh, which has kept them quiet, uh, but that's not the way they want to live their life. Uh, but the families get quite frightened sometimes because uh, that there's a whole lot of argument and, wo- and worry that's g- recurring uh, when people become less sedated on different medication. So there are, it's, it's, there's no great medication. There's no single thing which works for all people. And, and uh, being patient and trying, trying different things and swapping over is is the way. But it, it is a dialogue. If it's, if it's forced upon people, then the answer is, it won't work for very long. So, um, I
4: find the most effective uh, strategy is, usually there's some sort of goal, kind of like what Anthony was just saying here, of, of, uh, of, of getting into to life, some aspect of life that wasn't there before that they'd like to have back or like to drive towards. And they note that through the period of becoming unwell, that disappeared, and that—that that I find is—is is often the hook. Like the, the young men we share, you know, going back to work for him was was the hook. So if there's a way to utilise that and say, well, medication helps you stay out of hospital. Hospital is why uh, being in hospital at the time you were unwell. Being unwell gets you out of work. So getting back towards work, there's treatment for that, and, and uh, using that as as a hook and incentive to say, well. Here's a way. Here's a here's a way to get back to something that you that you wanted to. Um, I really think in it, and it is kind of what we're saying, a, sort of like a, a care planning model. What is it that makes you unwell? Where's your Where's your long term goal? Um, if we can work towards a level of functioning that, that a level of stability that makes sense, you know, then we can start reviewing medication. But yeah, it, and it it's it's pretty hard. I mean. We have a few clients that are on a community treatment order and they're, they're receiving injections and they don't think they're unwell and they don't want medication. Families get involved saying they shouldn't be on medication. You know, you've misdiagnosed. And there's so many complexities that, that we have to deal with and we think it's in the best interest of the, the person. Um, um, but really finding that, in, I think, to hear it at home, I think finding that incentive of keeping someone engaged in their life, what they like about life and um, playing... Off that as a reason to stay on treatment.
1: One last question before I hand over to the audience, just staying with that, Oakes. We've all talked a little bit about family. Mm. I'm interested, family, you know, obviously have a big response to having their family member diagnosed with psychosis and then are often in a position where they're giving a lot of support or doing some caring or involved in some way. I'm interested in your kind of insights about the best way to work with families, what are some things you've discovered mm. that are helpful to assist families on this journey?
4: Um, I think best practice in um, a, a first episode or, or even a, a, a more chronic psychotic illness is to have family and carers involved, there's no doubt, and we're quite fortunate um, at the early psychosis like program to have a family social worker that dedicates this time to the family and um, look, there's so many different ways we, you know, so many different ways you can engage um, family. I guess at its core, education is probably the best tool we have for a carer to, to educate and what to do and, and what it means and what, what it, how it could impact the lifespan. And, but I think it, it, we, you really do need someone um, that's on the outside that can really that, that's your advocate. Um, it's, it's engage the person in, in um, getting well in treatment. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you, you, of course you're going to come up against challenges I and mean, there's so much stigma around the psychosis um, diagnosis and um, demystifying those symptoms is, is vital and, and keeping, you know, I think I'll pass over to the doctors but, but, and even Thomas Insights, but... But just keeping an, a level of uh, openness and accountability and open dialogue around what the plan is and, and, and their involvement and the family and, and the person you're working with is, is I think, core cool and par- paramount to um, impacting um, that person to, to, to get back towards a functional
0: sort of state. I think it's important to, to remember that treatment is not just medication, there's a whole realm of psychosocial interventions which are really important and, uh, uh, in, in getting people back to uh, a good recovery and which are very effective. And family therapy is one which uh, is, is important for many families if they're, if, if they're uh, from the very basic family psychoeducation to just help people understand what has happened, because often this is a process in which there have been lots of difficulties over a number of years, to using models, and there are a number of models of effective family therapy, be they about uh, communication uh, problems or communication deviance or problem solving, or there are a number of effective evidence-based methods of engaging people in family therapy and they help those families significantly, but also they they decrease the likelihood of relapse, and they help give a framework for support, ongoing support within that family.
2: I mean, the only thing I would add to that is that the family are a huge resource to the individual, and they carry a lot of the burden of the illness. Um, Carers, have a lot of undiagnosed difficulties themselves. It's not uncommon to hear of a mother giving up her job so that she can look after her son who mm. really just can't function at home without someone being there or who she's frightened might do something to himself or just wander off she's not around. Um, it's, it's also the case that carers you know, have a huge amount of emotional um, Stress and strain, and that impacts also on on their on their physical health. Um, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in, and I think something that sets carers of people with psychosis slightly apart from carers of, of other difficult illnesses like, you know, childhood leukemia, um, chronic diabetes, is that the stigma that exists around psychosis prevents neighbours, community members colleagues from asking about how's your son, how's your daughter. There just isn't that support in the same way that there might be for the care of a mother with, with an illness that people feel more able to talk about. And so they become these sort of silent, um, silent, very strained individuals who just want the best for their child and they've slightly lost sight of, of who the child is. And it's, it's very difficult, and it's actually for me. It's one of the most fulfilling parts of the work that we do is working very closely with carers, supporting them, helping them to understand that some of the behaviours of their son or daughter are driven by psychotic symptoms, or some of the other symptoms. Some of the other symptoms we didn't touch on the negative symptoms, so withdrawal from society, lack of interest in anything lack of energy, lack of facial expression, all those things. They're not just the young person suddenly being a lazy, <coughs> rude person. child. It's, it's actually partly to do with the illness. It's educating about that and trying to help them as a family get to what we generally all want to do, which is get the best possible outcomes for the young person. Yeah,
3: um, I have a mum and one brother here and, yeah back when I was in Kylo, and even before that, I had nothing to do with them at all. Really hated them, not good relationship, and it actually turned out that them being in my life was one of the best things for me. Um, nowadays, we get along so well, like very, very close, and they helped me so much in my journey, visiting me in hospital, um, taking me out places, that, yeah, definitely back up that family was very important for me in my journey to recovery.
1: I recently heard a talk from a professor, Nasrallah who suggests giving long-acting injectable atypical antipsychotics directly after the first episode of psychosis. This was to prevent neurodegeneration that occurs after multiple episodes. It's my understanding that this is generally treated as last-line treatment. What is your opinion on this, or what is the Australian approach to this?
0: Uh, I'm not sure about his work, but uh, a South African uh, psychiatrist called Robin Emsley has also got very good work that demonstrates that if you keep people on a depot antipsychotic, bait, they're much less likely to relapse. Unfortunately, most of, my, most of the people I look after really don't want to be on an injection. Mm. And so, you know, uh, that, uh, that becomes a matter of, of, uh, of quite a lot of debate. Uh, Now a whole range of of depots, uh, some of which are now up to three months, uh, so that decreases the the sort of that injection type thing. But there's no doubt that there's a real difficulty of its linking with community treatment orders, and the way that we, the way that it's talked about uh, and presented as as uh, as a as a forced option rather than just an alternative to the fact that most of us never take all the tablets that we're prescribed.
2: I mean, the ideal way to use a depot is if someone's agreeable to taking it for those reasons, in much the same way as young women who want contraception sometimes want to have a a one or 3 month depot in order to deliver that, but that's sadly quite rare. The depot is perceived as something which is quite punitive, to have the sort of, there's also a certain lack of dignity with it. I think we must be very, very careful about introducing depots at a very early stage in psychotic illness. The whole model that we work on is that you start start low and go slow with antipsychotics Um, so that um, people who haven't been exposed to antipsychotics before are, this is an odd phrase, but they're said to be neuroleptic naive and that means that their brain is going to be receptive to smaller doses of antipsychotic than with people who've been exposed to very large doses. And I think the problem with delivering a depot very early in treatment is that you may then establish a need to remain on that depot for for a very long time. So relapse rates when you come off depot are high. And that may not just be as simple as the fact that they needed the treatment. It may be that somehow the brain now needs the depot because it's always had it. And the other thing to say is that about one in eight people who have a first episode psychosis actually don't have any further episodes. So you would be, if you were to roll a depot out to every person, you would be exposing significant number of treatment that they still need. So I think we must be careful. I mean, obviously we want people to stay well, but we also don't want psychiatry
4: to be a model of enforced treatment. I wanted to. Um, I actually want to ask a question myself, but for the doctors. So it's interesting the the, the point about a drug induced psychosis and, and where that term sort of falls in. It's in it's, you know it's in the DSM and, and and it's a term that is used, but I guess for the doctors, is is that idea that drug-induced leading to a psychosis, is that a, a, a sort of an older idea now or is it is it kind of that we had vulnerabilities and, and the stress of a drug sort of brought it out? I mean, that's kind of... You know, I'm interested to know a little bit more about that. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, so what causes psychosis? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Uh, look, it, it's quite clear that you're having an... Inter- uh, there's an interaction between... Uh, your biological vulnerability with what is happening in your environment. Now, uh, if I asked this room how many people have smoked dope, um, and then asked again how many people have experienced psychotic symptoms, there'd be a very big difference. And there has been quite a lot of interesting work about that, which which suggests that there are certain genetic uh, variations in uh, in our genome, which predispose people smoking dope to developing that psychosis? Now, I don't know whether Thomas got that. There's no, there's no, um, there's no tested about that. But seriously, people have thought about: should there be genetic tests at raves? Should there be tests uh, to 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 help people understand the risks that they're placing themselves in in uh, in, uh, uh, in in using drugs? Now, I mean, I. I Tend to think about substance-induced psychotic disorders in a slightly different way, but I think there's intoxications. And I think most people, if they try hard enough and get intoxicated, sometimes very quickly, if they use uh, speed or, or things like that. And the psychotic symptoms with that do tend, with an intoxication, do tend to, to go quite quickly. But if you have a, a vulnerability, then you're likely to develop that psychotic disorder. They're symptoms that are lasting for a number of weeks despite some sort of intervention. Mm. And I suspect that in 10 years, 20 years, when our understanding is better, then perhaps that is really just seen as a dimensional risk that that person has interacting with their environment, Mm. whether that stress be lots of family arguments, whether that stress be Immigration, whether that stress be too much speed, uh, you know, that's just the risk that's interacting with uh, with uh, the dice throw of your genetics.
4: We all know
1: early intervention is important, but, Toma, you mentioned you first started noticing early signs when you were 18 to 20 and doing drugs. Did you seek any help during this time? Should there be
2: any structures in place for children or teens, and do you think the information was there? I think it's important... understand that um, the prodrome is sort of much more easy to recognize in hindsight once someone has gone on to develop a psychotic episode. There'll be many young people, in fact you sort of wonder are there any young people who aren't at some point going through difficult periods of anxiety and depression? That is much, much more common than... Uh, what turns out to be the pro-jump for a psychotic episode because we know that psychosis isn't as common as anxiety and depression. So, I suppose the question is, if you see a young person, if for example tomorrow you had gone and seen a GP when you were 15 or 16, the difficult question is, is there anything that would have set your experiences slightly aside from the many young people who are having anxiety and depression, and difficulties with adjustment, and, and, and often substance use comes in. There are lots of young people who use substances, and that's difficult. And sometimes it's about the quality of the experience. So paranoia would be less common among anxiety and depression if there's another odd idea or the odd hallucination. You know walking down the street sometimes feels like someone's um, calling called my name and turned around, there's no one there, hear people whispering in the leaves when I'm lying in my bed at night, that sort of thing. It's just not quite the same with anxiety. person has got a different flavour to it. And that's I think difficult, but that's what at-risk services try and do. They try and say, well, who among these many young people with difficulties are the ones that are perhaps somewhat more likely to go on and develop a first episode psychosis. And we'll look after them, and we won't give them antipsychotic treatment at this stage because that's not not indicated. You don't get antipsychotic treatment until you tip into psychosis. And that means meeting criteria, which are having hallucinations and bizarre beliefs, acting on them, perhaps having... um, the experience of your thoughts being interfered with, thoughts being put into your head, taken out of your head. So it's subtle, but, there, but, but what's less subtle is the difference between anxiety and depression and psychosis. So the pro is something in between. And in fact, we know that um, screening for people who have low-level symptoms so having an odd belief, but being able to dismiss it, still having some insight, only holding it with maybe 50% conviction, or hearing voices, but maybe only hearing it once a month, things like that. That's what we call attenuated symptoms, and that would be suggestive of a high-risk mental state. But probably only one in three of those people in studies internationally go on to develop a full blown psychosis. So it's, it's difficult to predict psychosis. The advantage of monitoring it is that when, if if someone does tip over into psychosis, you can treat because they're engaged, you can treat quickly. And that's been the big thrust of early intervention, actually, has been to reduce that nine-month period of psychotic symptoms that Anthony was talking about earlier, the average length of time that someone's experiencing full-blown psychotic symptoms before they get help. And that's really what we've been trying to do with early intervention, get them into care quickly, treat them quickly, and stop their social and functional impairment.
0: The other thing I'd, I'd add with that, uh, to that is that that group of young people who are having these par, uh, this pro-drone or these at-risk mental state uh, symptoms are often quite distressed and quite impaired anyhow. So even if they don't develop a, um, a, a psychotic illness, they're actually at very high risk of having a, a depressive illness or a significant anxiety disorder. A- and they've, uh, they're functioning um, uh, less well anyhow than their peers. So they're an important group to pick up just from the point of view of, of, of good clinical care for, for in mental, uh, good clinical mental health care. So
2: antidepressants are commonly used um, in the treatment of... Um mood and anxiety and in addition to that uh, there's often psychological interventions offered particularly cognitive behavioural therapy which is also a mainstay of treatment for psychosis um, and there's the focus of the cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT would be generally to help people manage their anxiety or their low mood or to challenge some of their own ideas or own beliefs. So for example if someone um, believes that their neighbours are spying on them, you talk to them, you know, about well how much do you believe it? Do you it believe it hundred percent? Do you believe it every day or do you only believe it for five minutes and you see the curtain being drawn as you look out your window? And that's the type of psychological work that has got an evidence base in psychosis and in the at-risk state.
4: Um, as a psychologist, I probably underscore that, yeah, you're looking at someone with, are uh, showing signs and symptoms that it's synonymous with distress. You know, they're, they're in a distress state. So um, that's often whether it's FVP, UHR, that's often where I begin the practice. So you, you, you want to, obviously, challenge, and you want to use CBT, but validating that distress and validating that they're in a situation of distress is, is so vital in changing, um, in, in, well, not necessarily changing, but impacting the illness course and development from the prodrome. It's something that we have as a mainstay. And, and I, think, um, I think giving someone that space, as I sort of said at the start, giving someone that space and,
3: Outside of medication, what do you think helped you the most, Toma, with your recovery? That's a good question. I, I did mention I have hobbies. Um, obviously, like to stay active. Um, but one one thing that does stand out for me was um, I came to faith. Um, I grew up in a Jewish background, and I sort of abandoned that through those years, and you know, didn't believe in anything. But it wasn't until I started going to Bible studies out of curiosity, um, just asking those questions relating to me and God and things, and just finding community, really, within within that area of faith. Um, started going to church, making new friends, because for a period I had no friends, because I decided to detach myself from those bad influences. And, you know, the, it, it, it really helped me... Um, open up, um, just things like reading the Bible, um, you know, going to different events, doesn't have to be church. But yeah, that is is one of the main things, um, and I'm glad you asked that question.
0: Can you comment on how to assess and differentiate odd ideas or beliefs and thoughts in comparison between OCD and psychosis? So when we look at the long-term outcome of people with psychotic illness, the best predictor Is actually the two domains of negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms. Uh, So, and cognitive symptoms probably are more important than even the negative symptoms. So, by cognition, I mean uh, neurocognition, memory skills, attention, concentration, executive planning, and social cognition. So, the ability to to uh, uh, to recognise emotions, to to be able to walk in somebody else's shoes, to be able to uh, understand the attribution that you might have for some sort of symptom is, is actually uh, perhaps uh, a psychotic one and to understand how that might have come about. So we, we, uh, uh, we do use uh, that. We As part of our workup we do a neurocognitive evaluation for people with uh, a psychotic illness because we think that that's one of the building blocks that we uh, that we use to determine the sort of mixture of treatments that uh, that we uh, that we use, and um, we use cognitive remediation techniques and and social cognitive remediation techniques, and have done so in, uh, in my team for about fifteen years. So we've had a series of, of research projects, and they ha- and they hit different targets. So they, they have, they're very useful uh, uh, for, in a range of different uh, contexts. Just personally, just bluntly, they're are useful in helping people restore uh, some of their attention and memory uh, and planning and, and to restore the confidence that they can actually do that because you we use lots of feedback and lots of computer games and things like that. And that, that really helps people get back into school or training or uni. But the social cognitive uh, treatments, which we've, we developed one set and threw it away and looked at another set... Uh, they're also, real, they're also really important because there's another group of people with psychotic disorders who really struggle with interactions and, and they, they feel bullied at school because they, they don't understand the interactions that are happening around them, they don't understand the, the assumptions of, of, of a group uh, and they feel excluded, and often they are excluded. Uh, but, and that, they, uh, that undermines their ability to get into work uh, because they uh, they don't understand the, the subtleties of, of, of what's happening, um, and that training and, uh, and, and teaching doesn't make up for all of uh, the problems that they've got, but helps give a, a base on which you can build. And then, having assessed it, you could also help teachers. You could also help the uh, the disability employment support workers. As this is a weakness, this is something that that that. Uh, uh, that this young person has uh, and that you'll need to if with their their permission engage the workplace in sort of understanding that uh, he doesn't get some of the certain things or there are certain parts of of an interaction which he'll take personally because of residual persecutory ideas of one sort of another. so we do use that a lot thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.